You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean. I'm the pastor here at City Church, and thank you for joining us in our gathering this morning. Uh, we're going through the Bible in a year, just one book of the Bible every single week, sometimes two, sometimes three. We're just moving straight through the Bible. So if you're new here, uh, we're not going verse by verse through certain books of the Bible during this series. We're doing overview sermons of every book of the Bible so the people who call this church their home or who visit or whatever it might be can have a full working knowledge of how all the scriptures work together and have an idea of what every book of the Bible is all about, ultimately pointing us to Jesus. Christ. We have about two months left. Uh, we will finish the book of Revelation, and then we will move on to other things. And for the past year, we've just been rolling through the Bible, and it's been a pretty great experience for our church. At least it has been for me and others who have preached as we prepared and, and really searched the scriptures to have a better understanding of God's word and why it matters for us. So let's pray together, and then we'll jump in. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you've given it to us. What an act of grace it is. How incredible to know we have the words of our God. We ask to be found faithful with that reality, with that stewardship. I ask that you be with all the churches in our city as they gather today, as we know we're not the only ones who are here, uh, that the name of Christ will be preached from every pulpit in this community. And as a result, people will respond either to new life, understanding for the first time, or be compelled to live their lives as Christians for the one who loved them first. Lord, we ask that you keep the enemy out of this place and out of our city. We ask you to be with our nation, you be with our politicians, you be with our healthcare workers. Lord, we ask for your hand upon so many. Lord, we depend on you completely. And it's in the name of Jesus we ask this. Amen. So my favorite entry in all the Bible is Ephesians. We talked a little bit some of these weeks about introductions, how in Galatians last week, Paul's like, hey, how you doing? I'm mad, and I gotta air all my grievances. That's kind of what was happening in Galatians. And Ephesians, and that was important because what was happening in that church at that time, it had to be addressed. But now here in Ephesians, we see a totally different ball game and some of the richest theology you'll find in an introduction of the Bible. In fact, if you go through the barn doors, you'll see on the wall where those tables are outside the auditorium, you'll actually see all of Ephesians 1 written out in the framed pictures. It's an amazing chapter. There's so much here to tell us about God, his love for us. We see the Trinity worked out. We see one God in three persons expressed uh, throughout chapter 1, uh, so I'm excited to jump into it. So let's get started. Blessed is, verse 3, is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Spiritually, I have everything I need provided to me by God. I don't need to go seek new spiritual blessings because I have them all by God's favor. God has given us and blessed us with everything we need, in other words, to live this Christian life. It says, for he chose us. Think about that. Like sinful us, holy God. And we're told plainly here that he chose us in him and how far back does it go? We can't even comprehend. Before the foundation of the world. To be holy and blameless in love before him. To be set apart as God's people. Before the foundations of the world, he chose the church to be that. And not just the church, but you and me if we know Christ. He predestined us to be adopted. He brought us into his family as sons through Jesus Christ is how it happens. Why did he do it? For himself, for his glory, but not just his glory, according to the good pleasure, for his pleasure of his will. God carrying out his will perfectly gives him glory and gives him pleasure. 
to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one who is Christ. I know some of those words can be a little heavy, a little wordy, uh, where it's like, okay, how does this all work? And that word predestined can be tough for some people, and I understand that. And a lot of times that we uh, will explain predestination only maybe theologically uh, in our sermons here, which is important, but I want to help you understand it in a different way today. Those of you who, and I think Christians can have different variations of how they carry out the idea of predestination and still be in the same church and get along and it'll all be okay. But here's what's important. I want you to think about it this way. Before the foundation of the world, those of you who are parents in this room, when did you first start loving your child? Did you first start loving your child the moment the baby was born at TMH or Capital Regional? Is that when? No. You started loving your child before your child was even born. To be really honest, for word church doesn't pretend everything's okay, that life is hard and that brokenness is real. Why do you think miscarriages are so traumatic for people? So painful. Why? Because you love your child before your child is even born. We know that. People have felt that. People say things like, to your a little later, I, I was praying for you when your kids spilled to understand these kind of conversations. Did you know that your, your mom and I, your dad and I, like, did you know your grandma and grandpa, we were praying for you before you were even born. Like that's how long we've been praying for you. I want you to think of this that way. That God loved his children before they were even born. That that is how huge and wide and the lengths it goes for us to understand what it looks like to be chosen in him before the foundations of the world. This gave him good pleasure, this gave him glory, And here the author of Ephesians is saying that, yes, I'm sure there can be questions. I know that we're going, your mind's going, okay, well, how does this work? How does that work? He's saying, but here is what our response ultimately should be to the praise of his glorious grace. That we should say, God, we worship you for this. We thank you for your love. And we want other people to understand it and to make it known. We're told that in him, verse seven, is in Christ. We just heard what the Father has done for us. And now get one God, three persons. Now the Son, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood. That is how we are bought back. That is how our sins are forgiven. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. What's happening here? What is this mystery? The mystery is really the Old Testament believers who hadn't seen the fulfillment of the entire plan. So there was a mystery to it. And here he's telling us, now he has made the mystery known to us, and we see in verse 10, the ultimate plan was to bring everything together in Christ, that he would be the supreme, 
that he would be the one that would receive all the worship and all the glory and all the honor, that everything on heaven and under earth is under him. His great mystery now made known according to his good pleasure we see once again. That it brings God glory and bring, it's bring God's worship, it brings God pleasure to be able to work out his mysterious will, not to him but to us, our mystery to us, not to him, for his people under Christ. We see in him we also received an inheritance because we were predestined, that's why, we were set apart to be God's children and children oftentimes receive an inheritance. God's children receive an inheritance, which is life with God, eternal life, here on earth and then in heaven. He says, who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. See, God is always actively working to carry out his plans and his will. And his sovereignty is much bigger than my mind could possibly comprehend. So rather than debate his sovereignty and fight over his sovereignty, I want to worship God because of his sovereignty and acknowledge there's so much that my human mind cannot comprehend and doesn't know. But God has made known to us the mystery of his will, which is to make Christ supreme. So we who already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. God wants us to know these things, not just to know Jesus, but to know the extent to which we have been saved. So it produces more praise in us, more honor to God in us. Also, I think more faith, more trust in God as we see that he works out his plans. It says in him, now we see the Holy Spirit. In him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and when you believed. What brings about our salvation in terms of our lives being changed, our hearts being changed, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. It seals the deal until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is what we could say holds our salvation. Allows us to understand the scriptures, to be filled, to be able to walk with God, but ultimately, it is that down payment. It's the assurance of the fact that God is still with his people. And then chapter two, we just see more of the story of God's grace. And when you think of God, I want you to think of God as holy, and I want you to think of God as gracious in his love. Like those two things happening side by side. We're told the bad news, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Thankfully, the word were is there, so it's not bad news for us. He's telling us how things used to be. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked, as in you lived it out according to the ways of this world, not the ways of God. You were walking under, we could say, the lowercase g, gods of this world. They were the ones who owned you and possessed you. According to the ruler of the power of the air, that is our enemy, the devil, who Jesus believed was a real being. And the Bible presents Satan as an actual real being, so I believe it's, he was a real being. The spirit now working in the disobedient. That the devil is working in the lives of unbelievers. Now it's hard for us to grasp that because you know, Halloween's coming up not too far along. And we see you know, the devil is like a pitchfork or some kind of, you know, just sort of like this like raging sort of Halloween costume. So it's like, wait, he got, got, Satan's not working in them. They're really nice people. How could you say that? I mean, they're, they're good people. They do good things to the community. There's nothing really bad about them in terms of, how could you say the devil's working in them? Well, the devil's working in them and the fact that he's directing them away from God and directing them away from God's grace and allowing them to be people who are living for the world rather than Christ. 
he said, we too. So we're not judging them. Guess what? We were there too. The only difference between us and them is Jesus and our salvation. Not that we're better people. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. That's what drove us. That's what motivated us. We were carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. You know what the result of that is? This rebellion against God? We are by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Horrible news. But thankfully the word but is there in chapter four or verse four. And that word but can sometimes be one of the greatest words in all of the Bible. Because it turns the page, it switches gears. It brings us hope. But God, here's who you were. Here was your just sentence as someone who has sinned against God and deserves God's punishment for sin because he's a holy God. But God, who is rich in mercy, who is willing to not give us what we deserve because of his great love that he had for us. What did he do? He made us alive with Christ even though you were dead in trespasses. He says, guess what? You are saved by grace. I mean, think of Easter Sunday here. That's the image. Jesus dead. Granted, he was not in sin. He knew no sin, but he was dead. And then he came alive in the same way. We were dead, buried in our sins. And our solution wasn't to try harder, to try to get more moral, to try to learn more information. We needed to be spiritually brought back to life. And that happens the moment of our salvation. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. That's our spiritual status. So in the coming ages, this is what is sure for us. He might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. See what God's doing? In his love, he's also receiving glory. It says that he might display. God wants to display himself to the world, to all people. And one of the greatest ways he does that is through his love. He says, it's you're saved by grace. He says, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. We say regularly here, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. That God is the one who does all the work, which is really good news because if it's in God's hands, guess what? I can trust him with it. If I couldn't earn it, then I can't lose it. He says it's God's gift. It's God's gift with no strings attached. He's not gonna take it back from you. It's a gift. He's not gonna re-gift it and give it to somebody else who did better that day. It's a no strings attached gift for you. Why? It's not from works. And what's the point of it all? One, it would never work because we can't save ourselves. So that no one can boast. Like that's the point of all this. So that no one can take credit except the one who has done it all. I would love for the weight to be off of your back. I would love for you to not feel like you have to check certain items off the spiritual to-do list in order for God to save you or love you more. Because it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not by works. And that will produce in you, one, a deep breath 
Just like a nice, deep breath. And then also worship and giving glory to God. The story of Peter walking on the water, steps out of a boat, you know, kind of showed a moment of faith there, wanting to walk to Jesus, but then it went pretty poorly because his eyes were not on Christ. I think we've often maybe seen this a little bit the wrong way. Let's put a picture up here. Here's a great piece of art of the story of Peter walking on the water, and it's kind of like he and Jesus together, and he's kind of trying his hardest, and he's almost there, and he's showing some faith, and Jesus is like, here you go, man, like, like let's go, take it to the next level, I gotcha, you know, like, stick out your hand, you kind of idea. And it makes us feel good, and it's pretty inspirational, and it's a pretty neat piece of artwork, but I think the story looks a little more like this. Jesus actually going all the way down into the water and pulling Peter out. It's not a joint effort. He does all the saving and receives all the glory. But Ephesians 2, he takes it further. That was actually a story of that Peter was gonna drown unless Jesus saved him. Here in Ephesians 2, we're not like kicking and screaming asking for a life preserver. We're told we're actually dead in our sins. We're dead. Like don't think hospital bed, think a hearst. And what happens? Good news, but God. We are brought back to spiritual life. He says in verse 12, at, this time, at that time you were without Christ back when you were lost in your sins. You were excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. Like what can you have hope in if you don't know Jesus? That maybe it's all gonna work out? That what's gonna work out? That you die a little later than you want to? Think about that for a minute. That what's gonna work out? For those of us who know Jesus, we have a certain hope that all God's promises are going to come true. He says, but, that word again, now, new status in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That God has brought you to him. But not just randomly, it took the blood of Jesus as our mediator to bring two hostile parties together. For he's our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. There's two kind of images that people believe are happening there sort of at the same time. One, the dividing wall, we see the temple image there of, of, God's, of people being kept from the presence of God because of their sin, that wall is being torn down, but also relationally, between Jew and Gentile, we see a wall coming down. He says he made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He tells us this in verse 19, here's the implication. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. There really is one spiritual race. As I said last week, that does not mean there still is not ethnicity in God's eyes. We're told that every tongue, tribe, and nation will gather together, but that matters to God. He's a creative creator. But spiritually, he says, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. We're all members of one family. We're not strangers to God. We are fellow citizens together, adopted into his family in his house. 
and it's built on the foundation of the apostles, all that was taught before, and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the actual cornerstone. So now we see, he turns over now, <clears throat> excuse me, to Paul's response to all of these truths. Everything we read in chapter one and chapter two of God's grace and God's love and what he's done, now we see this. He says, I pray being, that being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's why we need to know theology. That's why we need to care about things. It's easy to go, oh, who cares about theology? Just love God, love people. He's saying, no, we want to be strengthened in our love of God. We want to keep knowing more and more about the heights and the depths of how massive God's love is for all of us. And the way we do that is by reading things like Ephesians 1 and 2 to help us see and understand exactly what it is that God has done and continues to do. He says, but here's our posture, chapter four. If we're gonna reach this world, he says, speaking the truth in love. And here's what's tricky about that today. We live in an era where now love is in the eyes of the beholder, which makes it pretty complicated. So it's important that you and I both know that we cannot love our way into someone accepting the message of Christ. You can't be winsome enough thoughtful enough, caring enough for someone on their own to go from thinking the Bible is foolishness to trusting in Jesus. Remember we said earlier, a hostile world towards the gospel, people that are influenced by our enemy, the devil, following the gods of this world. And what does Paul say? Love anyways. Love anyways. And depend on God to do the work. He says, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Notice he also says, speaking the truth in love. What's the posture of many Christians today? Avoiding the truth and claiming it's because of love. Here he links the two together. Speak the truth in love. He goes, from him, and he talks about the church here, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. What's happening here? He's calling every Christian to be a part of a local body of Christ and also to do their function to help support the body. That could be prayer, financial generosity, serving, being a part of it, simply being here, bringing people, being hospitable. When you see people that you've never seen before, like, what is our role as part of the body of Christ? He says, therefore I say this and testify to the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do and the futility of their thoughts. Why? Because you've been made alive. You're not who you used to be. You used to be this and now you're this. He says, they're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity, the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. They're living for the gods of this world. They're caught up in whatever the latest craze is of the sexual revolution. They're dying for the approval of a watching world. He's saying, don't drift back into that because that's not who you are anymore. 
God has made you to be different. At the same time, while he's calling people out, he says this, and be kind and compassionate to one another. Those things are not at odds. Forgiving one another, a Christian posture, not randomly, but just as God also forgave you in Christ. You know what our motivation is for forgiving people that have wronged us? The fact that no matter how bad it is that something has, someone has done to you, and I don't make light of any of that, or how much someone has hurt you, or violated your trust, or crushed your heart, whatever it might be, no one has sinned against us any worse than we have sinned against God. And what has God done? He has forgiven us. He has forgiven us. We were dead in our sins and he made us alive. He goes, because God's forgiven you, the evidence maybe that you believe that and the extent of that and the hugeness of that is that you'll forgive someone else. There's power in those words. I forgive you. Might still want to punch you in the face, but I forgive you. Now, I might not trust you. I don't want to be best friends. But I forgive you. It's interesting though that God doesn't do that with us. You know that as a believer that God never wants to punch you. Ever. Do you know that as a believer that God actually does want to be your friend? It just shows the, the difference between God's perfect forgiveness and our close as we possibly can this side of heaven understanding of forgiveness. God never, or there's never a morning where you wake up where God says, I'm just really disappointed in you today. I wish you would just do better. You wake up every morning as a child of God receiving new mercies every single day. Why? It's just by grace that we have been saved through faith, not by works that no one should boast. Back to chapter two, verse 10. Paul quickly strikes down any idea that we can simply receive grace and then go, now I can go live however I want. He says, here's what God's doing. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now here's back to that before the foundations of the world, predestined language, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So we're not saved by works. He says now we're saved to do good works. Because now as believers, we are redeemed to go live as the people of God where our distinct lives are supposed to point people to our distinct God. So we are a working people. Not because we think it will earn God's favor, because we have it in Christ. And he's set us up and created us now and made us alive to go and live our lives to the glory of his name. He says, therefore, chapter five, be imitators of God. The imitators of God. It's one of the first verses I memorized going to FCA as a kid in middle school. That, those words going through your mind as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old. Be imitators of God, not imitators of the world. Not imitators of your friends. Imitators of God as dearly loved children. Not so you can be dearly loved children. Since you are 
dearly loved children, be like your dad. Your perfect dad. Not your flawed, earthly dad. But the image is there. I mean, how, what kids at a young age don't want to be like their dad? I'm 40 years old, I still want to be like my dad. If I, if I can go to old age, loving my family, living for God, loving the church, modeling integrity, being a person of high character, like my dad is at 70 years old, are you kidding me? I'm 40 and still want to be like my dad to this day, right now. Like, that's a successful life for me if I can be anything like my dad, straight up. That gives us a visible portrait of this invisible reality that as dearly loved children, let's imitate our heavenly father. And what is he? He is holy. He is compassionate. He is loving. He is upright. He is righteous. And the good news is he's given us all these things. Remember chapter one, we have every spiritual blessing. So everything we need to live the spiritual life, God has provided for us. He goes and walk in love as also Christ loved us. Again, it's always the motivator. And gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. You see here, and I don't need to apologize for the Bible ever, and you know me well enough that I never will, but you see how it's just not like this list of rules. You see that? It's not just a checklist of regulations. It's always rooted in something. And that something is who God is in his character and what he's done for us. It's always driven by that. It's never random. It's never rules for the sake of rules. Now, does God have the right to give us rules for the sake of rules? Absolutely he does. But in our relationship, there's always more to it than that. Don't just love. Love as Christ loved you. Don't just imitate God. You're imitating God as dearly loved children. And as the book starts to wrap up, it's only six chapters, here's what he wants us to do as workers. He says, pay careful attention then to how you walk. God cares about this. Not as unwise people, but as wise. It's sort of a live your new life kind of idea. I want you to make the most of time because the days are evil. As you get older, they tell you that the, the, the days are long, but the years are short. That's so true. So he wants us to now pay careful attention to the fact that how we're living our lives is wise. And we're making the most of every opportunity because the days we're in right now are not the days of God. We're living in the kingdom of this world. He says, so don't be foolish. He says, I want you to understand what the Lord's will is. And how do we understand God's will? Through his word. He has given it to us. He says, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with by the spirit. And that's an important image there. He's telling us what it looks like to pay careful attention and to walk wisely. He's not saying you should never have wine, because Paul drank wine, Jesus drank wine. It'd be kind of a weird contradiction. He's saying not to get drunk on wine. And the image here, well, one, that is in itself a command from God. But the image here is in the way that drunkenness causes your mind to do things it normally wouldn't do. He's saying, 
being filled with the Holy Spirit is going to allow you to do things you normally wouldn't be able to do, which ultimately is live for Christ and live for God's glory. So I want to be filled with the things of God rather than the things of this world. Then he gives another image. Second half of chapter five really talks about marriage, the relationship between a husband and a wife, the responsibilities, the roles, why it matters. And after he gives this very just kind of helpful, kind of countercultural understanding, he says in verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis as a real historic event. He's also quoting Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. He used the same language in 1 Corinthians 6, this one fleshness of a husband and a wife. And then in verse 32, he says, the mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He's like, wait a second here. I thought you were talking about marriage. He's like, I am. But you just said you're talking about Christ and the church. I am. Help me out here, Paul. He says, what he's telling us is, if we want to understand our relationship, and again, it's an overview sermon, so I got to, it just kind of comes out of nowhere. We're talking about marriage now, what? It's just kind of how it works, and you're going through a whole book of the Bible. The union of a man and a woman who are husband and wife together, together. Now that's more than sexual, but it's not less is a visible portrait of the invisible reality of the union between Christ and the church. That the oneness of marriage points us to the oneness we have with Christ. And the doctrine, if you wanna look it up and study on your own, is the doctrine of our union with Christ. We could say that when God created Adam and Eve, he already had the gospel in mind this would be the portrait that would help us to see what then it would be like to be one with the Lord. He says this, and to sum it up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself and the wife is to respect her husband. And right, just a few verses before that, he told husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. How much did Christ love the church? He died for the church. He's going, that's the image. Like we as the bride of Christ, our bridegroom, wasn't just willing to die for us, he did. Visible portrait of the invisible reality. And the very end of Ephesians chapter six, he says this, for our struggle, it's a reminder here, is not against flesh and blood. Other people are not the enemy. Unbelievers are not the enemy. Other world, other religions, those people are not the enemy. He says, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens, as in we have an enemy and he is real and he is called Satan. And he is at work and he is the enemy. First Peter says he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour his prey. There's a solution here, he says, for this reason take up the full armor of God, again it's figurative there, as in put on Christ, be clothed with Christ, be filled with the Spirit. So you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. This is 2,000 years ago-ish, a little less, when that was written. 
And he's saying, guess what? You've got to be willing to take your stand. Because the forces are real against us. And the only real solution is to put on the armor of God, to put on Christ. Not be drunk with much wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And here we are 2,000 years later. And the story's the same. People who have been saved by grace, not by works, who are dearly loved by God, who are called his children, who are called his bride, will you be convinced enough of the extent of God's love for you and his sovereignty over all things that you're willing to take your stand for him? The time is coming, maybe it's already happened for you, at work, at school, and at home, wherever it might be, where you're gonna have to make a stand and make a stand for Christ. And the question is, unless we are filled with the Spirit, unless we are putting on the armor of God, he says our struggle, and that's what it's going to be. And the way against our struggle, and to fight that struggle, is to be clothed in Christ, with God as our armor, and his word as our truth. The only one truth, Jesus himself. The way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. What a great book, and that was a lot but we're going through books of the Bible one a year, once a week. So uh, Ephesians will be in Colossians next week and uh, we'll keep rolling. So let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the book of Ephesians. Let it be a reality in our lives. Let us understand what it means to be loved children to the extent that you even loved us before we were born. It's just amazing to think about. We worship you for that. Now we wanna be good sons and daughters. We want to live our lives convinced of who you are and what you've done. So Lord, I ask that you, by your grace, fill us with the Spirit and allow us to stand firm in the truth of who you are and what you've done. I pray for the students in this room, middle school and high school students, college students, Lord, that you allow them to stand strong. Lord, that you give them courage. We can't do this on our own. Lord, that you fill them with the Spirit so they will not carry out the desires of the flesh and they'll be willing to take their stand and to live for you. Live their lives for Christ, the one who is willing to die for them. Amazing. Lord, for all of us, let us be on your mission together and see the local church as the vehicle to drive that. Thank you for all us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand up and sing some good news together.